As, um, as we come upon this week, I, I told you last week that, that we're going to really look at this, uh, this kind of uh, week-long series that we're going to be in starting today, ending next week, but actually having Good Friday in the middle of it. It's just a big question why. But before you even get to why, you've got to ask another question, I think. Because I said we're going to be covering it from a perspective of maybe a skeptic. And, and I think one question you've got to ask is, is Jesus for real? I mean, are we talking about a myth, a legend, a man? A, you know, is he real? And I think that that's a legitimate question. I have no problem with people asking that question. I'm not offended by it. I think I have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with it. We all have to tear it apart a little bit by bit by bit throughout some time in our life. And it's not just, I was spoon-fed, this is a child, therefore it, it must be. Is Jesus real? Is He a myth? Is He a legend? I mean, obviously, books have been written for years and years since 2004, or as of 2004. 17,249 books are in the Library of Congress that have been identified as being about Jesus. So... We're not, we're not plowing up new ground here today. We're not even going to even begin to do that. But I do want us to ask that question. Is Jesus for real? First of all, you think about it from a historical point of view. Is He real in history? And there's been some debate about that over time. Josh McDowell is one of those who has gone through this whole turmoil. A very intellectual, uh, trained, Ivy League school trained skeptic, actually atheist, for a lot of his life and went in and dove into this very topic, pulling back the layers, asking the questions, and came out on the other side a believer, went out to disprove Christianity and came in believing in in Christ. And he was called upon for a debate in New York City by the Association of Students at Midwestern University. Whenever 2,400 students or 2,500 students gathered in New York City to hear this debate on whether or not Jesus was real and the, just the historicity of Jesus and whether or not he existed. And one, one of the persons, the person he was debating was a lady across the, across the table said, historians today have fairly well determined that Jesus Christ or Jesus as being not historical and as being a, a false person. Well, immediately jo- Josh McDowell jumped all over that because when you argue that from an intellectual, again, point of view, there is evidence. There's 27 different first century documents out there that point to, written over different periods of time, different personalities, different continents, and they all point back to the historicity of Christ, that He did exist, and that being the New Testament that we have. But you go beyond the New Testament, you say, okay, excuse the New Testament then. Then you can even find in history, where you find ancient historians pointing to this. I want to point out one, in uh, that being Josephus. Josephus was one of those who was born in AD 37, and he at 19 becomes a Pharisee, was not a believer in Jesus Christ, and, and yet he was a historian. He served in the, in the Roman army. He was a very educated individual, and he has written. But yet, in, in the midst of his writings, even today, if you study ancient history, you will read from Josephus. And this is one of the statements that he makes in his writings. He says, Now about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. Again, remember, this is not from a believer. This is from a, from a, a Jewish Pharisee of that day. But yet, it was clearly turned. He certainly turned the eyes and the attention of people in that day. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth 
with pleasure. He drew over to him both many Jews and Gentiles. He was the Christ. Again, I, I just want to point out today that it's really a mute topic today. It's a mute debate. Historians believe that Jesus Christ was a person in history. Now then what you've got to deal with is deal with all of his claims, all of his miracle works, all these strange things that happened. Even Josephus pointing out that this man did something, can you even call him a man kind of statements. When you have that out there, then you've got to ask your question, was Jesus for real God? Is he really God? Then if he's God, then what would God do die on a cross? What happened there? That is such a turn of events that, that shouldn't have happened. But let's just not even skip past that too quickly. Was Jesus God? And I can take you to one of the New Testament letters that was written in the first century by, by the Apostle Paul in Colossians when he says this, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Now this is probably the most succinct statement in all the New Testament. There are other statements, don't get me wrong, most succinct statement that encapsulates the entire deity and humanity of Christ. And the understanding, just understanding that, that Jesus in human body existed, but as He existed in human body, He was also in the fullness of God. So He was fully man. He was fully God. He was as much man as He was God and as much God as He was man all at the same time. It doesn't make sense to me, but again, I'm not God. It's not going to make sense to me. It's beyond me. And who is this person? It is Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God. Everything about God. So if you want to understand God, understand Jesus. Become a student of Jesus and you will understand God. Now again, some people struggle with this. Two weeks ago I was in New York City. was driving, uh, I was actually riding in the back seat of a cab. I would never drive in that town. But uh, riding in the back seat of a cab. And I got in this cab and uh, this the, the driver had been in the United States for 11 years. He was an Egyptian-born Muslim. And he was blaring across the radio the Quran. It was very clear. It was the Quran. And as he was listening, I said, what are you listening to? I knew, but I was leading it into a question, some more conversation. I said, he said he was listening to the Holy Quran. I said, oh, good. You're, 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 a, you're a religious man. You're a holy man. He says, oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. I said, well, I, I, I too am a religious seeker of God. He said, oh, really? He said, what are you? I, and I said, well, I am a follower of Jesus. So that created a, a good dialogue for the next 10 minutes in this cab drive. Of course, I, he's getting paid for this trip, and I'm, and I'm willing to pay it because we're, so we're going, and we're talking as we go, and he talks about his holy book. And, and I asked him, I said, have you ever read about, uh, about Jesus in the Quran? And he says, yes, Jesus is in the Quran. And so we had this good little dialogue back and forth. But he said this, he said, the reason I cannot believe that Jesus is God because why would God ever die on a cross? Why would He ever let His Son, why would He ever Himself die on a cross? Again, there's something not right about this picture. I don't know if you've grown up in the Christian circles all your life, and I know you just accept it and you just wash over it, but it's really true if you think about it intellectually for any length of time. God of gods, King of kings, the God in the fullness in human body, dwelling in Christ, yet He dies the most heinous, God-awful way. The barbarians invented the crucifixion. And the Greeks and the Romans adopted it as their 
most crucial form of punishment. And so they would only do it to the most hardened criminals. How is it? And again, I have to go with the, the Egyptian cabbie for a moment here. It doesn't make sense that the God of all the universe would die a cruel, heinous crime, a cruel, heinous death. So these are the questions I want to deal with for the next three services. Today, Good Friday at 5 and 6.30, and then next Sunday on Easter Sunday. Why? Why is the cross so important? Why is suffering so much a part of the cross? And then, why is the resurrection? I mean, it literally changes everything whenever you come to the resurrection. It changes the paradigm of it all. And so I want us to, 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 to grapple with this a little bit. Because whenever I think about sin and I think about crimes and little petty thefts and little lies here and there, I don't think of it in terms of God dying for it. I think of me getting my hand slapped. I think of me doing something wrong in school and having to write out a hundred times in the piece of paper, I will not do that again. I will not do that again. I will not. That's what I think about when I think about punishment. You know, you've heard the statement, let punishment fit, fit the crime. Let the punishment fit the crime. I don't know if you've practiced that as, as parents, but we practiced that with our kids. I'll give you an example. When we were with Jordan, Jordan had kind of this spicy teenage attitude at one point in her life, and, and she liked to demonstrate that attitude, not so much in words, but by curling up her nose and storming out of the room and slamming her bedroom door. And, and so we had warned her against that, don't do that. And so finally, one of those days, she slammed her door. And so what did I do? I went and I took her door off. And for the next week, she got to look at her door leaning against her closet, but she did not have a door. And for a teenage girl, privacy, I, she would rather I have beaten her to death than to take away her door. But the punishment fit the crime. So here, if that is a logical way, punishment fits the crime, how does Christ dying on a cross fit the crime? Why? Three reasons I want to talk about really quickly today, and I want you to just kind of let this, listen, I'll promise you this, if, if if, if, it, if I am able to transfer my heart to your heart today, you will not leave here feeling a light load. You will, you will leave here with, I pray, a respectable, reverence, sense of holiness weight upon you. Because this is not an easy week when you think about it. The outcome, because we know the end of the story, may be good. But let us dwell in the tension and the trauma and the violence of what led up to this and what got us to this point. And these three reasons for the cross, well, let's just unpack them. Number one reason for the cross is that sin is more than a dastardly deed. It's more than a mistake. It's death. Sin is death. And we've got to start equating it. As such, see, man sees sin as an accident. God sees it as an abomination. As a blunder, man sees it, but God sees it as blindness. As chance or choice is how God sees it. Defect is how man sees it. Disease is how God sees it. Error is how man sees it. Enmity is how God sees it. Fascination is how man sees it. Folly is how God sees it. Trifle is how man sees it. Tragedy is how God sees it. Weakness is how man sees it. And wickedness is how God sees it. Delight is how man sees it. Death is how God sees it. Whenever you emotionally allow yourself to go to this dark spot for a moment, dwell there for a little bit and understand that when Adam and Eve were in this perfect place in a perfect world with a perfect God and everything was perfect around them, they could eat from anything, but they ate from this one tree. What did God say would happen to them in Genesis chapter 2? Today, that day, you will surely die. 
but they continued to live. How is it that they continued to live and yet on that day they began to die? Because inside of them, death occurred. Because when sin happens, death happens. Sin, the Bible says, is the transgression of the law. When I go against God, when I, when I battle God, when I say, I'm going to do it my way, God, and I'm not going to do it your way, I just ignore Him. I kind of, kind of claim some kind of level of ignorance to His way or His will. I don't even listen to Him. Then I am transgressing. I'm going against the way in which God would have me to go. And what is the outcome of this? The wages of sin is death. Sin is death. It kills me. It kills my spirit. It kills societies. It's interesting. Let me go outside the biblical world for just a moment and let me take you into history. Let me take you to a British historian in the 1940s when he studied 21 different civilizations that deteriorated, that fell apart. And out of 21 different civilizations that that went into extinction, he came out with five characteristics. Let me read them to you. The very first characteristic is that there was a sense of drift. They just kind of drifted away from the standards, the morals, the ways in which they were meant to go or they were heading. They succumbed to escapism and retreating into, the, into distractions. No longer were they focused. No longer did they have a true north. No longer did they have a sense of direction. Now they began to wander in aimless lifestyles. Number three is they would fall into some sort of a promiscuity of thinking discriminate the acceptance of anything and everything. They now begin to tear everything apart and deconstruct everything and say there was really, where, where, do, where does life end and begin and all that kind of stuff? Number four, again, realize this is a historian. He's not coming at it from a Christian perspective. He's looked at 21 different civilizations and they've all just deteriorated apart. Number four, there's a sense of moral abandonment. They move away from a moral standard. Number five, is they feel this huge burden of guilt. As their, as their people, as their land, as their country falls apart. He just described the progression of what happens when I die on the inside because of sin in my life. You just take this and you flip it over onto King David and you find the exact same thing. When D- David should have been at war, he was on the rooftop. When he should have been looking at war battle, war plans, he was looking at a woman bathing. He began to drift. He succumbed to escapism and retreating into distractions. Instead of focusing, regaining focus and alignment, he went towards, he went towards Bathsheba. He, he engaged in this promiscuity, comes in, a sense of moral abandonment goes aside. He even goes so far as to make sure Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is dead. And then he over is overcome by this huge, huge sense of guilt. That's death. That is a spiritual, psychological death that happens inside of us. And we live with this sense of guilt. And so, therefore, some people will run from God because they don't want to come back to the church. They don't want to hear a message like this that says, hey, your sins killed Jesus, my sins killed Jesus. Instead of, they don't want to go to where... David found, and what David found in in, in Psalm 32, one of his confessional psalms, it's a beautiful statement. Whenever he said this, blessed is the one, because not everyone finds this, blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You forgave the guilt of my sin. What was the last thing that happens to a society? This overwhelming burden of guilt. What I did was wrong. 
Are you going to run towards God or are you going to run away from God? David ran towards God and he experienced a grace, but he had to feel the weight, the guilt, the shame, the betrayal that he inflicted. Because what is sin? Sin is not an oops. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not, well, it's my choice. No, sin is death. Death to the person, death to the marriage, death to so many things, society. Sin is death, number two. The reason Jesus had to go to the cross is sin and death are not cured through pardon, but through payment. Understand this. This is really big. Because there have been some philosophers, theologians, if you will, that have said that God has pardoned our sin. And that's actually not the truth. Now, when you think about it, in some degree you might think of it as a pardon, because what happens in a pardon? Let me put myself in a scenario. So let's say I break into somebody's house, I commit an act of murder in self-defense or I'm stealing something or, or something, something I got awful like that, and I am caught. I stand before a judge. I'm put on trial. The evidence is there. I'm found guilty. I am sentenced to life in prison or maybe even death. Then the judge in some weird, bizarre way, or the president, in some weird, bizarre way, pardons me. I'm found guilty. The evidence is there. But I'm pardoned. The problem with that scenario is, is all of society is now upset with that judge, with the fact that all the evidence is against me, and I'm walking free. Now see, God did not pardon us. Because pardon means that there's still guilt out there. He didn't just write us off like a bad business plan. He almost did with Noah, but he didn't. He didn't write us off as a bad business plan. He actually, here's a life principle for you. Christ did not pardon us. He paid for our sin. Huge difference. See, we don't want a debt lingering out there. We want a debt paid for. We want to be paid in full. We want our sins taken care of. Jesus provided the penal substitutionary atonement. He stood in our place and He paid a debt we could not owe. He paid a debt that He didn't owe. He paid our debt. He paid my debt. He paid for all the sour attitudes that I've had in life. All the times that I've let my temper flare up. All the times that I have cheated, stole, lied, or anything to my family. He put all of that and He paid all of that for me. Now again, Christian world, please, don't slip into the commonness of this message. And let the familiarity of this message get lost. In fact, let this Easter season be one that resurrects, to use a word, that resurrects in you a freshness of the weight of your sins and my sins that put Christ on the cross. Because He didn't pardon us. Just wipe it clean. He paid for it with His own blood. Here's some verses. I want you to read them out loud with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, us all, Christ redeemed us. Here's another one, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became the curse that we were 
pretty big statement there. John 15, 13, a lot of people quote this around the military and what they give and sacrifice for us. Really, the greatest sacrifice is the perfect Son of God who hung on the cross. And this was said of Him, or He said it of Himself. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Again, this is all throughout the Bible. Here's one more. Read it out loud with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is real love. Not that he that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Again, I can read to you today from uh, Isaiah 53, 6, John 1, 29, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 1 Peter 2, 24, uh, Hebrews 10, 5 to 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 10, Ephesians 5, 3, Colossians 1, 20, Romans 5, 9, and you'll read again and again and again and again how Jesus Christ paid for your sins and mine. Sin is death. It's not some delightful trip, joy ride that you get to choose to go on and nobody's going to have to pay for it. Your attitude, if that's the attitude that you, if it's an attitude thing, if it's an action thing, if it's a it's if, if it's not doing what God's told you to do, whatever it is, there's a payment that was paid. My grandmother grew up in the Great Depression and she grew up very poor. Everybody in the Depression was poor. But she was the, the, the daughter of an alcoholic who spent all the money before he got home on alcohol. And so you can just imagine being poor of the poor. I heard all kinds of stories growing up. She taught me a lot about the value of a dollar and the value of hard work. One story I heard was the story of a boy who had worked really, really hard to get 25 cents, to get a quarter, to be able to go down to the drugstore because there was a soda fountain that had just opened up and they put ice cream and soda water in there and they mixed it together and it was this treat that only the wealthy could afford it. And he saved and scratched and climbed and got together his quarter and he invited a friend along with him. And they ordered, because it cost 25 cents for one soda they ordered two sodas and they devoured them, not putting the math together, just rejoicing in the moment. And they got up to the teller and the teller said, that'll be 50 cents. He had 25 cents. I thought you had, no, they didn't have enough money. You can see the sweet the sweat begin to beat on the boy and a thousand thoughts a second were going through his mind. How is he going to pay for what he cannot afford? And, and all of a sudden, this sharp-dressed man... Uh, in an expensive suit, reaches across his shoulder and onto the counter and lays down another quarter. He says, I got it, boys. You go on out and play. This boy, this man walks out the door never to be seen again. And I think about that story and I think about that's exactly what Christ did. We had a debt we could not pay. He owed a, he, he, he paid a debt he did not owe and, and, and he, he came and he did it because there was no pardoning. It was just a matter of fact that God stepped into man and went to a cross and died for you and me to pay a debt. Number three. Third reason is that sin is great. Sin is horrible. But God's love is greater. And I want you to feel that. Again, you may be here today and you're feeling the tension and you're feeling death and you're hearing sin and you're Listen, I want you to hear it. I want you to feel it. I want you to live in it. But here's what else I want you to hear and I want you to feel. is The over, 
overwhelming love of God. And, and the cross to some people is, is sheer stupidity and, and it's, a, it's a necklace that you wear around. It's a good luck charm. But for many, it's, it's stupid. It's foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. When you really understand the power behind that cross, behind that instrument of death, where Jesus, listened to these words, violently fought and expressed His love for you and me. Violently poured out Himself so that we could have a relationship with God Almighty again. Romans 5.20, last verse. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. See, here's the reality of it. You can't out-sin God's grace. There's not. We're going to go through the baptismal waters here just now. In fact, those who are getting baptized can go ahead and get ready. But here's the, here's the beauty of this. Everyone who will walk through those baptismal waters over the course of their life will 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 enact, will think, will feel, will do, will initiate sinful, ungodly acts enough in their life that nobody should be forgiven. Except for the fact that God absolutely and will violently, violently fight for each one of these people. And the thing is, these waters do not make them saved, okay? This is Bentonville City water. That's all that is. And that's just Randy, and I know Randy. That's not going to make him saved. Alright? In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, it says that if we confess our sins, or, excuse me, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Alright? It's, it's something that happens in, the, in your life. You confess it. You're believing it in your heart because with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses. It's not baptismal waters. Every one of these people have made a confession of their faith to follow Christ. And there's only one person. See, there's not a plan B with God. There's not plan A is this and plan B is... No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. In Acts it says that there's, there's no other name under heaven. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone. Maybe you're here today and you think, I need that. My sin is death. It's been killing me on the inside. I want payment for my sins. I want to recognize and receive God's payment. I want to experience His love, the depths of His love. 38 people today are going to be baptized at Grace Point Church. That's awesome. Maybe you're 39. Maybe you just need to go home wet today. Maybe you're going to be wet anyway. Go home wet. 